we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Hello, this is Jessica Vaughn on Parsing Immigration Policy. I'm filling in this week for Mark Krikorian. I'm here today with my colleague Dan Cadman, a CIS senior fellow who retired from a career in immigration enforcement and as a Homeland Security official working at ICE and INS before it. Uh, He ran ICE's National Security Unit at one time and also the Miami field office. And his many excellent articles can be found on our website at CIS.org. And today we're going to be talking about Florida, specifically the recent impanelment of a grand jury in central Florida to address illegal immigration. Welcome, Dan. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Likewise. So tell me, the Supreme Court recently approved Governor DeSantis's request to impanel a state grand jury in central Florida to address the problem of illegal immigration. Tell us, what is this grand jury going to do? How is it going to work? Well, you know, let me preface my comments by saying it it was a really astute thing to do. And I think there was some real forethought put into this on several levels. Grand juries, as you know, whether at the state level or the federal level, are in a certain sense of their own right investigative bodies. So you can have a grand jury impaneled, which can do several things. First is that it can, you know, receive evidence from law enforcement officers through the auspices at the federal level of a U.S. attorney, but at the state level here in Florida, in this instance, from state's attorneys. And usually when that's done, it's with the eye to bringing indictments against individuals who are believed to have committed violations of the state law. However, the grand jury can also, as I started out by mentioning, it can also conduct its own investigation. And in that kind of instance, again, through the auspices of a state's attorney, the grand jury can direct that Florida law enforcement officers pursue certain leads that arise in the course of the grand jury's work so that the grand jury can be looking to determine whether or not violations exist. And then the third thing that it can do is that it can issue reports and findings of what has occurred over the course of its life. And in the case of the Florida grand jury, it has a shelf life, if you will, initially of one year with the possibility of a six-month extension. Given Florida's situation, we, we tend not to think of it as a border state, but really it is. Florida is a maritime border state. If you think about it that way, obviously they have 
for many decades had a longstanding problem of smuggling in through the Florida Keys and up and down both the east and the west coasts of Florida. But secondarily, Florida is a prime location for illegal aliens intending to cross the border and migrate into the United States. That's partially because Florida already has a large Hispanic community, and that Hispanic community has roots in many nations, Mexico, South America, Central America. And Florida is in many ways still an agricultural state, and to the extent that a lot of the individuals who cross the border illegally don't have other marketable skills or the skills that they do have were originally in agriculture, this leads them into the state of Florida. Mm-hmm. We know from our research that illegal immigrants tend to go to places where there is already a support network, either family or people from the area that they've migrated from, not to mention job opportunities. So that's why Florida is such a destination, because it's been dealing with illegal immigration for so long now. And there are well-established communities that people have to go to. Absolutely. And if you look at a map and you take a look at Interstate 10, it's a direct pipeline from Texas through Louisiana, through Mississippi, through Alabama, right into the panhandle of Florida. And when they hit kind of the end of that panhandle, smuggling loads can shoot down any of a variety of locations. One would be down the Florida Turnpike, one would be down Interstate 75, or they can even go further east and go down Interstate 95. And this gets to the point I want to make here that one might think that the governor would have asked for that grand jury to be impaneled, for instance, in the state capital of Tallahassee or someplace else. Instead, he's asked for it to be impaneled in Polk Hardy Highland counties. If you look at a map, that's South Central Florida, down around where Lake Okeechobee is, but it also happens to be where all of these different avenues on the interstates come together so that that can be considered one of the fulcrums by which they can conduct their investigations as a grand jury and return indictments if that's what's to happen. Mm, That's interesting. So it's a transportation hub where it's located, not just a hub for illegal farm workers or something like that. Absolutely. Um, And that's why it's not like in Miami or somewhere that we associate with illegal immigration. That's correct. Because it's focused, the the order approving this grand jury is interesting in the way it articulated the specific types of criminal activity that they're going to be looking at that have to do with this most recent influx of illegal migrants. And that is, they're going to be investigating even parents who have paid criminal smuggling organizations to bring in their children. And the specific charges, I think they're looking at human trafficking, human smuggling, child abuse, ID theft. They're also empowered to investigate persons and organizations involved with transnational criminal organizations to smuggle in children and other illegal aliens. So they're really attacking this criminal activity and approaching illegal immigration as 
an essentially organized crime. Is that fair to say? Yes, it is. And, and they're not incorrect in making that assumption. One of the problems with the way this administration has undertaken to handle illegal immigration is it's kind of perverse. They have forced Customs and Border Protection, primarily the Border Patrol and even ICE, to perfect the schemes of the smugglers and the individuals who pay the smugglers to bring these children into the United States. Uncle Sam is, in effect, acting as his own coyote, his own smuggler, by having these border agencies and interior enforcement agencies take custody of the individuals and then move them along to the parents who paid criminal organizations to have them smuggled in to begin with. And I know there's a lot of people who sympathize with the parents, but let me say that I'm not one of them for a lot of reasons. It doesn't take rocket science to consider that in the approximately, depending on where they're coming from, 1,800 to 2,100 miles that they're going to have to have these children traverse from Central America up through Mexico, Texas, and along, in this case, into Florida. Those children are subjected to extremes of weather of all kinds, both frigid cold in the desert and steaming jungles. They're subject to all kinds of reptile and animal and human predators. I think Human Rights Watch estimated that one-third of the females, and that's of all ages, who are smuggled into the United States end up being sexually abused. Parents paying to have this done, I find it unconscionable. Here in the United States, if a parent was to leave their child in the car while they walked into Walmart, there's a good chance someone would call, have the police come, break the windows to rescue the child, and put the parent into custody. And yet somehow we think it's okay to allow parents to pay criminal organizations to move their children across multiple international borders with little or no preparation or sustenance and to rely on the good-heartedness of those organizations. That's insane. Right. I agree, Dan. And I think it's also worth pointing out that The parents are complicit not only in the smuggling of the kids, but we're increasingly seeing cases surface of parents who bring their kids with them using a smuggler, and then the purpose of them coming is to also work here illegally in factories, on farms, in poultry processing plants. Reuters recently broke a story about a subsidiary of Hyundai that was operating in Alabama. And there were at least 50 miners, some as young as 12 years old, working in this factory where there had been all kinds of OSHA violations. And it's considered too dangerous for anyone under 18, I think, to be working there. And yet, Parents, one interviewed in the news article said, yeah, well, we need to feed our family. So my young kids, they were young teenagers, 12, 14, and 15, I think, were working at the plant with the full approval of the father. So even if they're brought here by the federal government, even if they're brought into Florida with a government-contracted form of transportation, still some of these parents could be and should be on the hook 
for potential criminal charges if the grand jury investigates and finds that to be the case. It's it's not just the model that we're more familiar with of a, a smuggling organization, a coyote, bringing people in, putting them in a stash house. I think those people will also be targeted by this grand jury. But I think this is a really interesting approach and one that helps us recall what really is happening here, that people are really being enticed by the Biden administration's open borders policies to do this. Absolutely. Uh, with yes. Their children. Yes. In a certain sense, the parents are using the children as human shields to buy their way into the United States and onward. And they're not averse in, in such instances, as, as you've mentioned, to continuing to use the children for their own purposes, in this case, working in inappropriate circumstances, because where they come from, perhaps child protections aren't as rigidly enforced or don't exist. But that doesn't make it right, and we shouldn't pretend that it does. And I'm really happy to see the state of Florida being aggressive about this, since the federal government is falling down on the job in the most egregious of ways. Good point. Yeah, I don't think Floridians want to be an accomplice to this kind of activity. No, they should not be. Are you aware of this ever being done by any other state, an approach like this? I think it's a first. I am almost certain it's a first. And one other corollary that could come out of this is that as this grand jury goes about its work and as law enforcement officers and state's attorneys um, feed information and evidence into it, it's also entirely likely that they're going to be able to expose what are not just state violations, but federal violations. And the interesting question is going to be, will this administration, will this Department of Homeland Security under Mayorkas accept those charges and pursue them with United States Attorney's Office, or will they try and bury them? Because if they do not act, it's worth saying that the federal statute of limitations in many of these crimes is at least five years, and some of them it's 10 years. And so if the Biden administration chooses to turn a blind eye to federal criminal violations uncovered by this grand jury, there is nothing to stop a subsequent administration from picking up the baton and pursuing those charges later on down the road. That's a good point. And what about illegal employment violations? Is there a statute of limitations on those? Because ICE is not doing much worksite enforcement right now. And this investigation in Alabama apparently is being led by the Labor Department of Alabama and the United States government. But no mention of Homeland Security Investigations, which has responsibility for worksite enforcement. What do you think about that? Well, it would depend on the particular charges that are being lodged, whether, for instance, they involved any allegations of peonage or whether they involved allegations of fraudulent documents and, you know, allegations of smuggling and transporting. So some of those violations are going to be five-year violations, but depending, again, on how the charges are preferred, there may be a number of 10-year charges, you know, 10-year statute of limitations charges in there that could be brought forward even if the simple charge of illegal employment fell by the wayside. These should be addressed by the federal government 
but they're not being now. But states do have these tools and authorities that they can try to use to step into the breach left by the Biden policies. Yes, they have that capacity if they are so inclined. We have seen certainly in Florida with Governor DeSantis and in Texas with Governor Abbott, an unwillingness to tolerate the ineffectualness or even blind ignoring of the law by this president's administration. And I would like to see other states, you know, join that rallying cry. I think to some extent, Louisiana is starting to do that too. One of the things that we often hear is that immigration is a federal responsibility and therefore states have no part to play in it. That just is flat not true. Not only do states have the authority to enact their own statutes where it's appropriate, but if you stop and look back at history, you would find, for instance, that until there was a federal inspection station at Ellis Island, U.S. immigration inspections were conducted by inspectors from the state of New York and the state of New Jersey. And this was long after the passage of the Constitution and the creation of the United States. And if you think about it also, up until the late 1980s or the early 90s, state courts were authorized to naturalize people into citizenship of the United States. So when people say that immigration is, is uniquely federal, they get that because the Constitution says that all laws pertaining to naturalization will be passed by Congress. But that doesn't mean that states are therefore barred from aiding in the administration and execution of the laws that the Congress passes. I believe there's plenty of room for mm-hmm. that. I'm pretty sure we don't want the current administration of the state of New York running our immigration policy right now. <laughs> <laughs> but, <No. laughs> but I can think of some instances in which the states are legitimate stakeholders. They bear the cost of federal policy failures in many ways, both fiscally and labor market and sometimes public safety. So, Certainly their health and social service networks are severely impacted by the federal government's inactivity where immigration is concerned. Indeed. And the schools as well. Yes. Yes. So they have a very clear vested interest in ensuring that what is happening in their state is in the best interests of the citizens and domiciliars of that state. So let's talk about the third issue that the grand jury is authorized to investigate. And that is the issue of adherence to a law that was passed by the legislature in Florida that requires state and local law enforcement agencies to turn over to ICE any criminal aliens that ICE is asking for custody of for removal. And in particular, there is concern at the state government level that Miami-Dade County is not following this state law and flouting it specifically by refusing to turn over individuals for ICE custody. Have you been following that, Dan? I will admit that I have not been following that, but I am not surprised to hear it. And I think that what we're going to see is some serious follow-on actions here because 
with the legislation that was passed at the behest of the governor that was running parallel to the request for the impanelment of the grand jury, it amends Florida statutes, not just to specify that county sheriffs and local police cooperate fully and provide information to federal immigration authorities. It goes a step further and specifies that any state, county, or municipal government agency. So it goes now beyond just the law enforcement officers in the state of Florida and the correctional officers in the state of Florida to require that all of these agencies must cooperate with federal immigration authorities in providing data. And I think that where you start to see these egregious circumstances, such as in Miami-Dade, they're going to find themselves, I think, carrying a heavy penalty where finances are concerned, where state budgets cut them out or state grants are pulled back and other punitive measures will be taken to bring them into line. Which is legitimate because they are implementing policies at the local level that affect everyone in Florida in terms of the costs of services and public safety and so on, as, as we've talked about. So these local sanctuary policies are really imposing a burden on the rest of the state, and the state has said, that's not okay. We want to address it. So they need to be held accountable. I mean, and there are some counties like Broward County, for instance, has started issuing a municipal ID card that they want law enforcement agencies to honor and banks and, and so on. And yet, I'm told by my sources in law enforcement in Broward County that when a law enforcement officer then arrests someone with one of these cards and wants to verify their identity, see what, you know, the underlying breeder documents for this municipal ID, they're not allowed to have access to it because it's considered privileged information. So it all goes one way. What I see happening, and, and I may be wrong, actually, I hope I'm wrong, but what I see happening is that the stakes are going to continue escalating. And if these local and county governments persist in these activities, what they may find next is that the state legislature is going to go along with a request to create perhaps not just civil, but criminal penalties for flouting of these laws. I, I don't see in the long run with this governor that they're going to be allowed to go down that path very far at all. And I think if they continue, it's extremely foolish on their part. There are real human costs to these sanctuary policies. I mean, you know, especially when we're dealing with cooperation between law enforcement agencies and ICE. Allegedly, some of the public defenders in Miami-Dade County were trying to have their clients classified as victims or witnesses, and thus they'd be exempt from the state requirement to turn them over to ICE if they were removable. But we have to remember that almost all the people that ICE is targeting for removal, especially nowadays, they are criminals, people who have been causing problems in the community. Absolutely. And, and I don't know why state and municipal government officials are so naive as to believe that leaving those kinds of individuals in the community, particularly in the immigrant community, why that is a favor to the immigrants who live there. It's not. Why, why would they think that it is in those people's interest to allow criminals and gangbangers and drug traffickers 
to continue to live in the communities and prey on people. It, it doesn't make any sense at all. None. Right. So Governor DeSantis and the legislature have done a number of things to try to address illegal immigration in Florida, some other executive orders, some other legislative initiatives, and most of them have been targeted at illegal immigration. But recently, the governor announced a new executive order in which he ordered that the Confucius Institutes that are present on many college campuses all over the country will no longer be permitted to exist on Florida state higher educational campuses. So Dan, could you explain to us what is the Confucius Institute and why does Governor DeSantis want them kicked off Florida campuses? The Confucius Institutes are, to be as brief as I can, are propaganda arms of the Chinese Communist Party. They were established at U.S. campuses as a way to influence not only how the People's Republic of China is perceived, but also as agents of influence for purposes of gaining access on those campuses, many of which are pretty prestigious and which have research going on, whether it's defense research or biological research, etc., that is of keen interest to the Chinese Communist Party. And as a consequence, those institutes not just act to grease the skids with the campus administrations, but also provides a way for the Chinese government to keep kind of an eye on what's going on with their own population of foreign students at each of those campuses. And those institutes have been exposed. Even the State Department described Confucius Institutes as an arm of the CCP. Recently, because many universities closed their chapters of the Confucius Institutes, some because it was the right thing to do and some simply because they were under a lot of pressure to do it. The Confucius Institutes have rebranded themselves and are right back. And to the great shame of many of these institutes of higher learning, they have allowed this rebranding to take place and are right back where they started allowing these rebranded. It's still the Confucius Institute. It's just called something else, but they're allowing them back on campus, which suggests a degree of cavalier approach toward national security, as well as the the moral question involved, where we know that People's Republic of China is engaging in genocide with the Uyghurs, etc. I'm happy to see that Governor DeSantis is looking at this and saying, we don't have to put up with this with state-funded universities. We're not going to. He's right. Yeah. These bastions of academic freedom in the rest of the country are quite okay with an organization that's just cover for espionage and intellectual property theft and cracking down on dissent. Naive is probably the nicest way to put it. It's the attitude of this academic leadership, but there's something insidious here. So the governor's saving them from themselves, I guess. It is what the governor is doing. And it's a shame that it had to arrive at that, but that's another instance where I would like to see other states follow that example. And in fact, I have written a recent blog 
quoting a report from the Martin Center, which is centered in North Carolina, which has taken a real hard look at the Chinese Student and Scholar Association, CSSA associations on various campuses. And even the CSSAs have been infected by the Chinese Communist Party and are being used as, a, as an internal method of discipline and harassment of those Chinese students in the United States who don't toe the Chinese party line. And um, some of the instances of harassment are egregious. So I, I think I'd like to see the governor expand that executive order to cover some of these other organizations, which are clearly acting as arms of the Chinese Communist Party in its heavy-handed attempt to control the population of Chinese students abroad. Yes, indeed. I hope that these initiatives are successful and deliver some results. They really are a good model for other states to use. And I think that they are going to be effective. I think that this is low-hanging fruit for any state that wants to address the problems of illegal immigration, particularly when the federal government is so slack in its responsibilities. Well, I enjoyed talking with you, and I do look forward to the possibility of talking again. And uh, you take care of yourself. Thanks so much, Dan, for coming on. We appreciate your insight. And I hope everyone will check out all of your work on our website at cis.org. One of the reasons that state leaders and Americans generally object to loose immigration regulations is that some people who never should be allowed to stay, people who are actually a danger to the public, end up taking advantage of our porous immigration system and then cause serious problems here. The latest example is Franklin Mayeve Vasquez who just a few days ago was sentenced in Massachusetts to 20 years in prison for the brutal attack in September 2018 on four of his crewmates working on a scallop boat off Nantucket. One of his crewmates was killed. Mayeve Vasquez stabbed him with a fishing knife. Two of the crewmates that he clubbed with a hammer did survive, thank goodness. We don't know Mayeve Vasquez's full immigration history, but we do know that in November 2013, at about age 22, he was approved for DACA, the controversial Obama amnesty-type work permit program for illegal aliens who arrived as minors. It was implemented about 10 years ago. So Mayeve Vasquez was a dreamer. He got DACA, but he didn't renew it, and two years after it expired, he apparently became worried about his status because he convinced a 20-year-old woman in the Newport News, Virginia area to marry him just a month after they met. And then he tried to open a printing business in her name. This green card marriage didn't go well. Maeve Vasquez, who, according to his wife's parents, was addicted to pills and heroin, was arrested twice soon after they were married for violently assaulting his wife, strangling her, forcibly abducting her. Both times he was arrested, he was released by a judge once on a $20,000 bond over the objections of ICE, who by that time wanted to deport him. Once he was out on the streets again, he got the job on the scallop boat and just six months later commits the horrific attack off Nantucket. So. 
This case has a number of lessons for the future. First of all, the vetting for DACA definitely was overrated. Many who got it shouldn't have, and many who were kicked out of the program are still here. What a lot of people don't realize is that, according to USCIS, something like 12% of DACA applicants had a criminal history, including very serious crimes, often multiple arrests, but 68,000 of them or more were approved for DACA anyway, despite those criminal histories. Secondly, marriage fraud is rampant in our immigration system, and it's not likely that USCIS would have picked up on this particular case of marriage fraud if they actually got around to submitting an application, which we don't know. Even though this young woman may have been coerced into petitioning for him. Thirdly, the criminal justice system really fails to account for the likelihood of illegal aliens to flee proceedings after they're arrested. And in this case, the release could have ended up disastrously for that young woman and certainly ended up disastrously for the people who ended up being stuck on a scallop fishing boat with this dangerous person. Finally, criminal recidivism is a serious risk, so ICE needs more capacity and resources to act against illegal alien criminals before they end up committing more crimes. I've posted more information on what we know about the criminal histories of people who applied for DACA and also about this case of Mayeve Vasquez, and other materials are available on our website that I hope you will check out. Thanks for listening. Please don't hesitate to give us your comments, suggestions, tips at cis.org or directly to me on Twitter. My handle is at Jessica V underline CIS. Enjoy your day.